0: This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Just About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach, and I'm the author of Find Your Happy at Work. Our topic today is overcoming the polarization that's everywhere in our society and that often can be a destructive, wasteful element in the workplace. Our guest is David Livermore. He's a social scientist and he is passionate about cultural intelligence and about how people from different cultures can bridge the gap and find ways to talk and work together. David has written an interesting and instructive book It's called Digital, Diverse and Divided, how to talk to racists, compete with robots and overcome polarization. David will describe what the term CQ is all about and he will give us the details on a process that can help a working team to get past their differences and work together in solving problems. share tips for moving beyond some of the big differences between us, like origin, race, gender, faith, and politics. And he'll talk about how people are really more alike than you may think. David, welcome to Jazz About Work. I'm so interested in the kind of work you've been doing with addressing polarization. But here at Jazz About Work, we always like to know Who is this person, and what is their career like, and how did they reach this point where they're so passionate about something like overcoming polarization? So before we dig into your book, Digital, Diverse, and Divided, could you tell us a little bit about why you got interested in how people are so divided and how your career brought you to the point where you are today?
0: Thanks, Beverly. So I really appreciate the opportunity to interact with you and and your listeners. And yeah, as you know, the the body of my work is predominantly focused on cultural intelligence, which then uh, I've applied to this area of polarization. Um, but for a long time, I, I didn't really share um, what kind of birthed in me this interest um, because it really stemmed from me being an aspiring missionary. And uh, you know Christian missions has sometimes been guilty of anything but cultural intelligence. Um, but in, in spite of that, it really was in part what sparked my early interest in it, even from you know the age as, as a young kid, 10, 11 years old. I didn't end up pursuing that path, but I was actively involved all throughout my career in just finding myself in being asked to engage in expanding the programs and organizations of which I was a part internationally. So you know, Specifically, I was helping a leadership development organization take their curriculum globally, and the more I was doing so, the more that um, our international partners were saying, you realize what you're teaching us is a very Western, or for that matter, very U.S., model of leadership. And so that's what kind of sparked my initial interest in this journey toward cultural intelligence, and then pursuing some academic research in it, and then eventually really devoting my whole career to it. So that the rest, as they say, is history.
1: All right. So what is your definition of cultural intelligence or CQ? And how have you been pursuing it? What have you been looking at? And then how have you been taking that information and applying it in places where polarization is really a problem. What, what do you do with uh, the approach?
0: Yeah, so we define cultural intelligence as the capability to work with anyone who's different than you. And the primary way that we applied it for several years was... Kind of in the way that I describe my own early career journey, that is helping people who are working internationally, whether that be business executives, you know, traveling overseas for short periods of time, or even people you know, based in the US who are part of global teams virtually. Then you know, as the diversity demands began to grow across the world, and particularly here in the US, cultural intelligence began to be applied quite a bit in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And really, over the last couple of years for myself as a citizen, as I started to increasingly watch the fact that it felt like no matter what the topic of conversation, it would end up in this polarizing debate, um, that's what caused me to go, hey, actually, these same skills that we've been teaching people about how they work with international differences apply to people in our own neighborhoods, communities, sometimes even in our own extended families, but for sure, the, the people that we encounter at work.
1: Well, before we get into maybe some techniques some um, ways to bridge the gap, talk a little bit, if you would, and the way you did in your book about how people are not really as different as it sometimes feels. Sometimes it feels like we're worlds apart, but you uh, what you pointed out in the start of your book is that in many ways people are alike. So how is that?
0: Yeah, thanks, Bev. It's it's a interesting tension that I faced in doing the research for the book and then writing it because in my field as a social scientist, we kind of scoff at anything that focuses on similarities. You know, it's all about yeah, but the real interesting thing is let's let's look at the differences. And uh, so, yeah, part of when I was researching this, I, I was coming across more and more people who do it well, who were talking about these ideas of yeah, but I, but I prefer to see my polar opposite as my my fellow human being, which can sound like such an artificial platitude, but actually. You know, it's rooted, as you know, from us having interacted about the book, it's rooted in uh, the research from the Human Genome Project that came out uh, at the turn of the century, turn of the millennium, where it was found that 99.9% of our DNA is the same. And that doesn't dismiss the importance of talking about our differences according to gender or ideological differences or race or ethnicity, But I I began to see, and the research bared out, that if we start with, hey, first and foremost, we are fellow human beings and we need to find our shared bond then, there. And that doesn't mean that we then just take what some called years ago was the colorblind approach of, oh, I don't even see color. No, of, of course we do. We do lean into the difference, but we're doing so having started from seeing what we have in common rather than starting with what divides us.
1: One of the things I like is when you described how um, there's some things that uh, are the same in all kinds of culture in some degree. Like yeah. we all like food, and it's not just food the way animals eat food. There's there's a emotion and connectivity with other people and things around food, or how humans sort of have innate fear of snakes which i do and i often admit a country house where there are snakes but those kinds of um uh themes that are just part of every culture that's one way we can connect isn't it just noticing those kind of uh, similarities
0: yeah yeah it really is and it, again I'm, I'm i'm smiling as you ask this because i think about all the times that Even I, you know, as a faculty member in the past at universities would, you know, kind of snipe at a student who's like, yeah, but we all have so much in common. Like, oh, okay, that's so simplistic. But there is a beauty, as you just noted, like, you know, we all get up in the morning. We're all looking for meaning in life. And yes, to your point, like eating, yes, the things that we enjoy eating and how we prepare our food food even how we eat our food differs vastly according to cultures and even regions of the country but the fact that that food is this communal event um you may recall we we talk about in the book too that that even something like gossip is something (laughs) that's a unique oh i love
1: that gossip can be good (laughs) Gossip is a way to bond with the people on your side. So if you and a girlfriend are talking about the guy in the office down the hall, neither of you like, and you start gossiping, (laughs) it won't be good for him, but you'll finish the conversation kind of more connected. Is that how it
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's one of those things that's kind of caught me off guard as someone who's allegedly an expert on cultural differences of saying, well... What you just described might be true in a U.S. company, but go to China where they're all about social harmony. No, like I have interacted with many, many people in a workplace in China where they too will, you know, get together and gossip about the annoying coworker down the hall. So there's there's something that's strangely bonding about this kind of insider bond that we create with people that that's a uniquely human thing. Our, our pets don't gossip with each other about, you know, the, the neighbor's pet kind of thing.
1: Ooh, that could be fun to listen to if they did. Uh,
0: <laughs> don't, don't ask me to go any further <laughs> on that. I don't really know what I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> but but anyway, let's let's start with the focus. I know we're gonna to touch upon uh, themes related to polarization, which are much bigger than the workplace itself. But this is a career focused podcast. So what um, I was impressed by is how you explained in a simple way that when you're different from somebody in the workplace, and different doesn't have to be um, uh, it, like race and gender and those kind of things. In a, in a workplace, different could be that you are the marketer and you want to sell, but that person over there is engaged in production and they don't want you to sell more than they can produce. That there can be those kind of gaps. But but you had a, a formula for culturally intelligent problem solving. Uh, so can you give us an example, say my example of the marketing people don't talk to the operations production people and it's getting to be really a problem. How how would um, a leader set up something to address that in a culturally intelligent way?
0: Mm, great question. If you'll allow me, let me let me give your listeners just a little bit of context and then I'll, I'll attempt to apply the theory to the, the real life scenario you gave me, which, by the way, I think you're absolutely right that sometimes those functional differences can be even more pervasive. In the polarization we have at work than than ethnic or gender or otherwise. Um, What I was going to say is the interesting thing about the work context, where I know is so much of your expertise and looking at jazzed about work and that is on the one hand, work is the place where we most likely experience the abundance of diversity because For most of us, we don't get to choose who we work with, you know, whereas in our personal lives, well, if you annoy me, I'm just going to stop hanging out with you or I'm going to cancel my participation at the family gathering, etc. Work, I've still got to show up at work. So that makes it more challenging. On the other hand, to the very point that you mentioned, what we know from the model and the research is that problem solving is actually one of the best tools to overcome polarization. And so um, in, in the work setting, to kind of apply our model to it, we know that cultural intelligence from our 20 years of research on it has four different capabilities. So anyone who's a culturally intelligent leader has high drive, knowledge, strategy, and action. And so if we apply that to your scenario, how does a culturally intelligent leader help the uh, production people and the marketing people kind of have some aligned? The drive pieces, first of all, first of all, we have to zoom wider than just my particular thing. So the mission of the organization, the fact that we all still want to be employed when we're done with this. So we realize that we need to have product that we're selling to people or they're going to be very upset. But on the other hand, if we just wait until quality control says that everything's perfect, we're never going to get there. So the drive piece is how do we zoom wider than our different agendas, perspectives to get there? Then the knowledge piece, like traditionally, this would have been Hey, Beverly, if you're heading to go do work in Germany, I would say, what's the knowledge you need to have about working with your your German counterparts in the scenario you gave me? It would be to say, okay, how do you as marketers actually take on the perspective of the people in production and understand they're not just trying to be difficult? They're literally saying with supply chain issues or whatever else it might be that we're not going to be able to have it vice versa production people, could you actually do some perspective taking and really realizing that the marketers are being evaluated based upon their ability to actually get people to purchase this and do it. So we kind of zoom back in there on that second piece on what are the different perspectives. The third capability, the, the strategy piece, again, internationally, I would say, well, you know, I'm an American, I'm working with a German counterpart, what's the strategy I'm going to use to actually do that in the scenario you gave? It's, okay, this is nice and all, I've appreciated you both had different perspectives, but we still have a business to run here. We kind of go back to that shared um, drive and figure out what is an actual plan. And maybe I can interject here briefly um, a real scenario that is quite akin to the one that you gave me, but with a little bit of differences. Um, That is to say, one of my leading partners that I work with in Singapore and I have very different approaches to the speed at which we want to do things and the level of perfection we think things should be at before we roll it out. So, you know, I tend to be, fast. You know, who cares if it's not perfect? I mean, you know, I'm not going to just throw out something that's garbage, but let's just get it out there and try it, et cetera, and do a couple drafts. I mean, my partner in Singapore would be such that 20 drafts would just be the very beginning. And after 50, we may scrap the whole thing. And so we have to, some, the strategy pieces somehow... We both are going to have to give a little because it's not going to work for us to, to feel like we both had a part in it if we go with my one or two drafts or with her 50 drafts. So, you know, can we compromise and somehow find a strategy in between? Last piece I'd say to it, um, my, my long response to your question, as you can tell, you've tapped into the area that I get pretty passionate uh-huh. about. The CQ action, it really I love the way you framed the question, Bev. It really comes down to now I have to figure out can I implement the strategy? And that requires leadership and resources that allow me to do that. You know, is, is leadership saying, Okay, production, you have to be able to produce more of these. Well, how? Like how, how are you going to help me resolve the supply chain issue, etc.? So to to get out of the weeds back to kind of the big picture of where you started on it. It it sounds relatively simple, but actually a shared problem has this really important um, value we know from the research in allowing us to unify around it and say, okay, together our differences can actually be an asset to solving that problem rather than being a barrier for actually getting the problem addressed and solved.
1: There is something incredibly powerful about solving a problem with somebody else. And I know folks who do, say, team building consultants who do um, like maybe a two-day retreat in which you have, you broke it into um, teams and a team is people from all different parts of the organization. And you have to, um, it might be doing something silly like uh, creating a a fence or a robot or something like that. You have to work together. And working on solving a problem together seems to be very bonding. So that's kind of an essential takeaway, I think, from your book, that finding a way to problem solve, and you both have to want the solution. You both have to be committed to getting it. But that in itself feels like a pretty important takeaway from your book.
0: I mean, you you have a real knack for rising above the several chapters to get what is the key piece. Absolutely, and it's it's actually I think um, what's troubling to me about a lot of the trajectory of, of the DEI conversation. And I, I say that understanding, and perhaps we'll even get into it. You know, People may be suspect of why should we be listening to this white guy talk about his concerns about, but what I, I'm absolutely an ally in the conversation trying to be part of it. But if we only focus on making people aware of unconscious bias or aware of historical systemic racism and whatever one might think about it, there's reason why it's not having a whole lot of impact because we actually have to work together to solve a problem that we both jointly care about. And if, you know, if I haven't triggered your listeners with that one, if we wade over into politics, I mean, I think it's the frustration that many of us have with our politicians, like quit name calling and <laughs> baiting us with all this other stuff and go fix the problems that we all care about as a society. So, um, absolutely. Uh, there's something powerful about, You know, let's let's get away from just talking about more theory and doing more education to let's work together on a a problem that we we both care about. And that last thing I'll say on that, that's that's the really critical piece. I have to care about it and you have to care about it in order for it to work. Otherwise, it's like, well, I'm not even invested in this. So why should I care about your different way of doing things? Yeah.
1: So the first challenge for the leader is to come up with a problem, to identify it, to frame it in a way that both people have a stake in being successful and both people care about it. Well, I started with a simple kind of example in the workplace, the, you know, the functional differences between marketing and production and things like that. But the same technique seems to be what actually does work when we're talking about these much bigger divides. You, um, I like the way you describe these big divides. I think your term was figured worlds. They're five figured worlds. That's hard to say. <laughs> uh, five figured worlds that shape us. Um, would you talk about what you mean by worlds that are figured and how um, those are so big, not just in the workplace, but around the world? And, and how we have to find some ways to move past them.
0: Yeah, so we're, we're all part of several figured worlds, and these are just basically the social groups of which we're part. It's not that different from the idea of, saying we're all part of different cultures, but I find the minute you say cultures, people immediately think nationality or ethnicity, and that of course is included in it. But you know, the, the most obvious example that most of us have of figured worlds are the families that we grew up in, where we figured out how the world works, which is kind of the idea behind the concept of, of figured world. Yeah, the the five that I chose to talk about in the book um, are the ones that I think are creating the most polarization in the workplace. And we don't need to go through all of them, but I'll just mention briefly place, like your nationality, uh, race, of course. I don't need to explain to people why today, uh, particularly in the U.S. workplace, race has become a divisive issue to talk about, yet important one, gender, um, faith, and politics. And to to just use one example, to kind of come back to your question, like why these figured worlds and how do they play a part in dividing us? Let's just talk place for a moment. And Bev, I, th- I think you're in Ohio. Is that right?
1: Uh, well, WOUB is in Ohio. I'm physically today sitting in Washington, DC.
0: Oh, okay. So it, those are two very different places, I would argue. They
1: are, they are. There is a cultural gap sometimes.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I asked that, forgive me for my assumption, but uh, I recently moved from Michigan, though I'm originally from the East Coast and my parents were Canadian, but I, I now live on the West Coast. And so I, I often talk about, as I've even done in our conversation, about the differences between China or Germany and the U.S. and how profoundly that shapes your identity and your figured world. But to your point, you know, you're only talking a few hours apart between Ohio and D.C. and yet you know, sometimes feels like you should have to have a passport to travel from one to the other. And I definitely have found that moving from Michigan to California, where the people in Michigan, other than being envious of the weather, are like, why in the world are you moving there? You know, are trying to get that state to... To be removed and vice versa, you know. Here, there's just an assumption of, oh, you must be so glad to be out of the Midwest. It's just kind of this interesting. Like before, I've even said anything about whether it's my politics or my values or priorities. There are these assumptions. So that that's what I get into um, as it relates to place and figured world. Really, it comes down to for me. I, I'm sure something you've dealt with a lot in in your work with workplace development of just trust. Who I trust is largely rooted in where are they from? Do they seem trustworthy? Do they respond to me in a way that seems polite and kind or um, credible, et cetera? So these are the kinds of things that can feel very theoretical, but then suddenly in the workplace, you hear that you have a new colleague who's coming from a region that you're like, what? Really? They hired someone from there? And that may not really tell you anything about that individual other than the zip code that currently describes where they're living.
1: Well, there are huge divides along all of these kind of lines. And and you alluded to it um, that uh, you had some qualms about publishing this book, looking at ways to address, say, race. Um, And you kind of feel awkward as a white guy. Uh, But I, I think I share your what I think is your conviction, that everybody has a role to play when it comes to equity. And it is one of the most important things uh, for a leader to be able to embrace um, and and work with. And uh, having um, ways to at least try to bring people together, it just feels like um, it's something we all have to do is is that you described yourself as an ally is that how you feel about it?
0: Yeah, it absolutely is Bev and I, I appreciate the question because I think it it needs to be I don't consider this to be a Dei book but when you're dealing with issues of race and gender it obviously, comes up in a lot of DEI related conversations. Yeah, I think for me, the first step and you know, because you graciously spent time going through the book is that I almost obnoxiously keep qualifying that I don't pretend to have the lived experience. of somebody who is and you know, maybe I overdid it in terms of qualifying it. But it was important for me to say, Hey, 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 I get that my perspective has limitations. On the other hand, you said extremely well, what my perspective is on it, it doesn't seem right to then abdicate all responsibility to those who are. So I, I don't pretend that I have the same level of insight, but this work that I've done has some relevance. And so, how can I not just say, "Well, doesn't relate to me or to my kids or to, you know to, to my world and situation"? But instead, say, "Hey, I I want to be part of a of a world that's about that." Can I can I share a quick non example of yeah. that?
1: Yeah.
0: So um, a number of years ago, I was working at a, a university. I was on faculty there and I was on an internal task force um, and also on the task force was one of my colleagues from the University, Christy, uh, was a vice president at the University. Christy was one of the most vocal people on campus talking about the issues that you just mentioned, equity for women across faculty, staff, students. And it, it wasn't directly a part of her role at all. She just was very much an advocate for it. And so she and I are in this task force together. We're in a meeting one day that's being chaired by a white guy at the university. And you know everyone sort of knows that this is Christy's reputation. And so He's just kind of poking at her, you know, and just says, oh, Christy, why don't you take the minutes for us? And I thought you would bring us some nice baked goods. And oh, you soccer, um, mom, I mean, just kind of, you, you could probably fill in the blanks for me. Yeah, right? I've been there. <laughs> and uh, she didn't say a word. I mean, she, she participated in the meeting in light of her role as a vice president. She didn't give any kind of reaction or resistance to this. She's a pretty good friend. So as we walked out of the meeting, I said, Christy, I, I can't believe you took that and she's like yeah i was waiting for you to say something and i was like
1: wow ah, you know so and a, good for her
0: right well that's not the way i felt at the moment you know <laughs> <laughs> cuz you know none of us really like to be called out so i initially was a little defensive i'm like okay but like how is that not perpetuating the problem like me rushing in as the white guy to protect my female colleagues, like no 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 I didn't need you to stand up for me. I needed you to stand up for you because I know you care deeply about these issues. And it would have meant a whole lot more if you as white male to white male had said, knock it off. I don't want to be part of a university that banters about these kinds of things. So that said, that along with myriad other mistakes along the way are part of what I've thought through in terms of what's it look like for me to be an ally I get it wrong many times, but I I think one of the mistakes that people like me can make is say, well, forget it, I'm never going to try again, and instead to go, no, I just need to do it a little bit better next time, and hopefully um, find myself being an effective ally.
1: I think you're correct, and and when we try to wade into that realm of being an ally, we always make mistakes. And that's part of our learning process. And um, we can't worry about that little bit of pain when we're working on issues where some people have had tremendous pain. So we just dust ourselves off and I think
0: Mm. step
1: forward again.
0: Yeah. And I often think, okay, for the number of times that someone might say, whoa, that was racist of you, Dave, you know, that's few and far between to the number of times that my colleagues of color might be experiencing a racist, you know, comment um, or, you know, female colleagues, something sexist. So, you know, I just try to put on my big boy pants and go, even if they didn't understand my intent, if it had a negative impact, I need to listen to that and not try and defend it away.
1: I agree with you. Well, now let's get back to the general idea of bridging whether it's uh, functional groups in the workplace or people in your neighborhood or whatever it is, I'm guessing that we have listeners out there who've been listening to you and now feel um, inspired to build some kind of bridge and some kind of situation um, in there, whether it's their job or their church or whatever. So let's say we have somebody out there. They want to do something today. They have a problem they have to deal with today. They don't have your book. How would you suggest, you know, if if, uh, somebody came to you and say, oh, I'm really having trouble commuting with this other group, how would you suggest they get started? If just want to do something today to make things a little bit better?
0: Yeah, I'm going to offer two things. The one is going to sound so simplistic that the skeptics might roll their eyes, but I'll share it anyway. One is to directly have a conversation about the differences with someone from that group. And you both have to be open to truly hear one another out. But I, where I say there might be some skepticism is I realize that sounds incredibly simplistic, but part of tapping into our shared 99.9% DNA is we just we need to talk to each other and not do it through a social media meme or a rant down the hallway or something. So that that's the first. The second, hopefully, we'll, we'll have a little bit more substance to it that might be something that individuals haven't thought about as much. Uh, there's a lot of uh, our research that's found that perspective taking is something that really helps to mitigate the difference. And so perspective taking would be somewhat similar to empathy, but we all do perspective taking all the time. You know, we we buy a gift for our child and we think about what's a gift that they would enjoy, not what's a gift that I would enjoy. And so when we're dealing with people who are different from us in the workplace, perspective taking is how do I as objectively as possible see this issue through their eyes not in some pejorative negative sheeple kind of you know demoralizing kind of viewpoint but if i could just objectively see it as they do what might that look like and then hopefully if if someone does agree to actually sit down with you compare one another's perceived perspectives of the other person's viewpoint and my hope is if, if Bev is really polar opposite to me on some kind of group that I'm trying to deal with, that I've thought through, how does Bev see this? And I sit down with you and I say, okay, Bev, let me see if I can say this from your perspective. If, if I've succeeded in an ideal way, what you will say back to me is, wow, I, I couldn't have said that better myself. That's exactly what I think. And if you don't, I keep working on it until you get there. And there's these relatively simple things of just have a conversation and then engage in perspective taking with each other. And hopefully you would do the same with me and say, okay, now, Dave, what I think you your view is X, Y, Z. Um, and then that kind of moves us back to this whole idea. Then how do we use that to share some kind of common problem that we both care about? So call somebody up that, that views, you know, politics or critical race theory or, you know, a- abortion or whatever the hot topic is of the day. Call somebody up who you know has a very different view on you and see if you can actually engage in a civil kind of conversation. Um, not that you're trying to convince each other as much as genuinely understand how they see
1: it. And I think um, I that's a really good advice. But sometimes finding a small application rather than like the huge picture. Sometime focusing on something specific that is I easy like to that. see is, is a good way to start a conversation. Well, this has been a great conversation, David. I can't believe our half hour has just flown by like this. So um, thank you so much for being here today. And again, the book is digital Diverse and Divided, How to Talk to Racists, Compete with Robots, and Overcome Polarization. It's a wonderful book for people who want to actually do something about bridging some of the gaps that we see in our social life all around us. So thank you, David.
0: Thank you so much, Beverly.
1: Today we've been talking with David Livermore about cultural intelligence and ways you can build bridges, and connect with people who aren't like you. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. Today's tip is that the people around you may be more like you than you realize. Taking a few minutes for small talk can be an easy way to start spotting your similarities. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work. And if you enjoy our show, please give us a good rating and please come back soon.